Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Lee Fong, welcome to Deconstructed. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. Hey, so you've got your hands on uh, some interesting audio from a, a recent meeting between Senator Joe Manchin and the kind of big money group, No No Labels. Can you tell us a little bit about who, you know, who, who, who No Labels is? Why are they meeting with Manchin at, at this particular moment? Well, No Labels is a political group that was founded a little over a decade ago claiming to bring both parties together to get rid of partisan dysfunction in politics, uh, to basically break through the gridlock, get rid of this polarization that's, that's constant in Congress, and support common sense solutions. Now, this group is controversial because, you know, a lot of the critics say that it's more of a stalking horse for very wealthy interests, for Wall Street, for a number of billionaires, that back this group that you know claim to oppose partisanship, but really are seeking a consensus preserving you know a tax code that's very beneficial to the rich, that's very skeptical of progressive reforms. And generally speaking, this group has been very engaged in politics. They spend a lot through a super PAC and a range of different political action committees. This group basically helps elect moderate Republicans and conservative Democrats. And in this particular political moment with a very divided Senate and a closely divided House, they're trying to wield as much power as possible to put the brakes on some of the more progressive reforms that Democrats are proposing. And Joe Manchin feels like their kind of ideal senator to be to be sitting down with. What's, where, where is he at nowadays? Well, all attention in Washington is on Joe Manchin right now. He's got the keys to the rest of the the next two years in terms of whether there will be significant political reform in the Biden administration moving forward. He's basically at the center of whether the filibuster should be reformed. Should that threshold of, you know, 60 votes be brought down? Should it be done away with completely? He's kind of at the center of that. And uh, adjacent to that, he's also kind of setting the conditions for the infrastructure bill, which you know, a component of which is tax reform. So these are big, meaty issues, and the political future of this bill rests on his shoulders because, you know, the question is, is this infrastructure bill going to be bipartisan? Are they going to include a lot of Republican voices which want to uh, water down the tax component, really bring down the size of the infrastructure bill by many, many, many billions of dollars? Mm-hmm. Or is, uh, sh- should the infrastructure bill be basically a Democrat bill that is large in scope, that encompasses um, not just energy and, infa- and, and traditional infrastructure, but human infrastructure in terms of job training and taking care of, of, of other kind of social welfare programs that arguably are, are also part of uh, the, the wider kind of societal infrastructure. So Joe Manchin holds the keys to this crossroads, and there's a lot of attention on him. And we obtained 
a recording of a major donor meeting with no labels. The main speaker was Joe Manchin. This was last Monday. This is a, a large conference call on Zoom, and many billionaires were in attendance. Folks like Louis Bacon, the billionaire hedge fund manager, Kenneth Tuckman, the um, outsourcing billionaire, founder of Teletech, private equity, Chief Howard Marks, also a billionaire of Oak Tree Capital Management, one of the largest private equity firms. Mm -hmm. Um, Interestingly, we don't know if Paul Tudor Jones was an attendee. He's another kind of famous hedge fund billionaire, but a phone number connected to his office had kind of signed in. I didn't turn his camera on, so we don't know if he was, Paul Tudor Jones himself was in attendance, but someone in his office had called in. So these are some of the biggest voices on Wall Street. And these are the folks who have a lot of power in Washington, though you don't see them on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, they're the ones that are shaping policy, but are often in the background. So this this donor call meeting was, was very interesting. Yeah, and it's a really a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation and much more open than you hear publicly. There are some things that Manchin talks about, and we, we'll get into them here, that the press has been hounding him on for answers, and he's been stonewalling them. And here he just kind of comes forward with it. Is there any particular part in the meeting that where you think we should start? Well, just the beginning of the call is interesting. You know, the, the, the call opens with Nancy Jacobson. Um, this is one of the founders of No Labels, who's you know helped found the so-called Problem Solvers Caucus in Congress, bringing together these moderate members, real mover and shaker in Washington. And she's basically laying out some hard-nosed politics, saying that you know we, we, the reason we have influence is because we can raise serious dollars, and we're going to basically dispense this money to make sure that people who agree with us can't be pushed by either extreme or other, any special interest, that you know they are given the political leeway to preserve the filibuster, to kind of preserve the, the, the policies and rules that, that they favor. And, and she basically lays out, uh, along with Andrew Bursky, uh, the head of a, another private equity fund in Connecticut, who's a executive board member of No Labels, the two of them, Jacobson and Bursky, are talking about how they need to raise money and dispense campaign checks, keep their allies in Congress. You know, the truth is there's no other group in the center that's putting the hard dollars together. And so you may see these big numbers with the campaigns, but that's a lot of soft dollars. It's a lot of super PACs. It's things they don't control. They love the hard dollars. And I, I, we'd be hard-pressed to think of any other group that can raise that sort of that sort of money. Our hope is at least $20 million over the cycle with this group and then hopefully keep doubling it, uh, you know, as we go. So, um, you know, we're, we're waiting, right, Andy? I mean, we're going to we're gonna see what happens with this next vote, and we want to reward uh, those people that, you know, get to party solutions. And so, so, Lee, first of all, give people a quick civics lesson on the difference between hard dollars and super PACs, and then I want to zero in on this remarkable line from her, we're going to see what happens with this next vote. We're waiting, right, Andy? We're going to see what happens with this next vote, and we want to reward those people that you know get to party solutions. Well, look, uh, there's a very clear line in terms of hard and soft dollars. Hard dollars are disclosed and direct and limited. Members of Congress can only raise a few thousand dollars from each individual. I believe it's $5,000 from a PAC, but something like $2,700 from an individual. In contrast, soft dollars are unlimited campaign spending. That's money that goes to dark money groups, to super PACs. Individuals or corporations or unions can give unlimited amounts. And with Citizens United, that kind of blew open the lid for soft money, legalizing it and, and normalizing it. 
So groups like No Labels can raise unlimited amounts and, and spend them th those dollars in terms of independent expenditures to an un unlimited degree. Right. And so a candidate is happy to have a super PAC, you know, at his or her back. But first of all, a super PAC can't coordinate with the candidate. So the super PAC just has to kind of follow the candidate's lead publicly and also has to pay much more for its advertising. So a dollar you give to a candidate is worth a lot more than the dollar you spend through a super PAC because of this way that there's a federal law that candidates get discounted television rates. So if the money goes directly to the candidate, that the candidate gets to control exactly how it's spent and gets cheaper rates. And so Nancy's saying, if people are voting the right way, then we're going to reward those people, but we're going to wait to see how they're, they're doing. I think there's been inflation. I think it's now 2800 by the way, that an individual can give. It's not a lot individually, but she, what she's promising is it'll add up to $20 million or so. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's not exactly clear how they're planning to transfer these dollars as they're describing it, but they're uh, ensuring that they're going to, in their words, give out checks to a number of me house members in the range of $50,000. Right, and let, so let's hear Andy uh, answering her. Any thoughts on that? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a really important question. I, and and I, I think um, it, it's easy to get almost frozen in, in, in place when you see the size of these campaigns and, and question whether we can have an impact. I, I think Nancy nailed it. It's dollars at the margin, in part, and it's dollars that they control, hard money dollars. I will tell you that uh, I participated in the last cycle when we handed out uh, checks to a number of our members of the House in the, in the range of $50,000. And in many cases, they, they volunteered the fact that was the single largest check they received uh, overall in their campaigns. So, um, and, and, you know, think about uh, joining the House. Uh, you're there for 730 days, unless you pick a leap year and maybe you get 731. Um, and for the vast majority of those days, you're spending four hours on the telephone dialing for dollars. And so uh, what what this does, uh, aside from sending the very strong message that there are folks who will have your back if you take a vote of a bipartisan nature that may not be uh, popular within your party, uh, it also, um, in, a, in a real way, frees them to do more work because they're spending less time uh, raising those funds. So it's powerful, and uh, there's just no, no question that, that we have had and can continue to have an impact. So, Lee, as you, you know, you can see that Senator Manchin is in his Senate office, and uh, all senators know there's no, you're not allowed to have a fundraiser, you know, on in Senate property, you know, that office or in in, in the Capitol. Um, this is a this is an interesting meeting that we're hearing, you know, you know, off the rip to be having so much conversation about about money. Do you think that this is um, typical for? a, a non-fundraiser donor meeting, um, and it's just unusual that we got our hands on it? It's hard to say. I'm sure these rules are bent or broken and, you know, that the truth never, never escapes because, you know, uh, members are covert about fundraising on, on the Capitol grounds or in the legislative office buildings. But generally speaking, um, lawmakers tend to avoid this because it's a, you know, it occupies kind of a gray area. You know, the, the the, the rules clearly define you're not allowed to solicit or engage in campaign activities in legislative office buildings, but uh, this is a donor call. They're discussing raising and spending campaign money, super PAC money. Uh, there's tons of billionaires who have given to campaigns who are asked to give to campaigns. 
uh, on this call. Um, but Manchin himself isn't doing the soliciting. Uh, so, you know, he, he might be technically clear of, of, of a violation, but it's certainly uh, skirting the limit here. Yeah, and, and, and to be extra clear, throughout the entire meeting, Manchin never once directly solicits you know, any, any money. They're, they're, they're strategizing, they're talking about campaign money, but they don't, he doesn't say, I would like no labels or, or any of these donors to fund my campaign. He never, he, he never does that. And we reached out to both no labels and to Senator Manchin. So let me quickly read um, statements from, from the two of them. So, so from, uh, from Sam Runyon, a, a spokesperson for Senator Manchin, uh, tells The Intercept, Quote, Senator Manchin was discussing the issue of money in politics and the impact campaign donations have on senators and members of Congress. He was not soliciting donations for himself or anyone else. Margaret White, who is the co-executive director of No Labels, provided the following statement to The Intercept. The group who engaged with Senator Manchin is motivated by a concern about the future of our nation. This was not a fundraising call, and any suggestion to the contrary is a false and obvious attempt to undermine Senator Manchin because he is one of the rare leaders in Washington who refuses to just toe the party line. It's often a lonely place to be. No Labels is proud to stand with him. So, Lee, uh, what, what do you make of those two statements? Uh, they're coherent. You know, they don't want to, <laughs> they, they don't want to be running afoul of ethics rules, congressional rules. Uh, so, of course, they're going to say that no rules were broken. Um, you know, uh, I think it's up to the ethics committee if, if, if anything was broken. Um, but look, at the end of the day, uh, they do care deeply about their relationship with Manchin and uh, this was a, a meeting with their biggest donors. I mean, the, the names on this list are the people over the last four or five years have funneled uh, millions upon millions of dollars into No Labels uh, various packs. You know, No Labels not only has a super pack, but they have this uh, array of different kind of um, uh, packs that are set up with really kind of uh, vanilla names. And perhaps they're named this just to kind of go under the radar, but, you know, they have United for Progress Pack, Citizens for a Strong America Pack, mm -hmm. United Together Pack, Progress Tomorrow Pack. So, you know, <laughs> this is a group that raises big dollars, spends big dollars in campaigns, a call with donors uh, directing them to continue give, giving money, and that money will influence uh, certain political decisions. It's a very political call, arguably a fun, fundraising call. Um, but again, Manchin didn't solicit directly, so perhaps he's not in violation of the rules. And we talked earlier about how much interesting openness there is in this in this call. Um, if you want, if you have somewhere you want to go next, let me know. But if not, we could jump to this this portion where he talks about this moment uh, during the 2017 uh, tax cut uh, fight, where McConnell kind of sells him out at the last minute, and he tells the donors that. You know, as a result, that 2017 tax cut wasn't bipartisan, and now it's on the chopping block. And that, and that'll be news uh, in Washington that that Mansion believes that that the 2017 tax cut is on the table for for financing either for infrastructure or or for something else. I truly believe if you want to separate this country further and divide us more, then you pass something on a hot issue that has so many variables in it that that's only going to be. Uh, only going to be supported by the partisan side. Whether it be a Democrat or Republican pushing something, you know, it makes it, uh, I'll give you a perfect example. The 2017 tax code. 
you know that's going to be changed. That was done with no Democrat, even me, I couldn't vote for it. Okay? And I tried. And they said at the last day before they voted, Joe, we don't need your vote now. So we're okay, we got enough Republicans. And so then everything I brought to the table was thrown out the window. But both sides do it. Both sides do it. And it's not lasting. So here we are, four years later, thinking about making tax code changes again. Okay? If you did something in a bipartisan way, it has what we call long legs. It can run. It can stay there. It has endurance. And that's what we're looking for. And that's what the world is looking for from America. So for for people who couldn't quite make out the audio, he's saying that uh, Manchin, uh, that, that McConnell at the last minute told Manchin he didn't need his vote. And so all of the things that Manchin wanted stuffed into the 2017 tax cut were thrown out the window. And so he voted no. And so now he's more willing to... Uh, to un- to undo it, um, Lee. W- what do you, what do you think of uh, Manchin's argument? H- had you heard that uh, that story before about his how close he came to voting for it? No, I, I had no idea that Manchin was close to voting for the Trump tax cuts. I, I know they probably uh, you know entertained his vote, but you know this gets at a, a few things um, that's interesting in this in this call. One. Uh, a senator as powerful as, as Manchin, rather than tell his, his voters in West Virginia or the press these interesting anecdotes about how the policy, the, the sausage is made, he tells these hedge fund billionaires. Um, uh, second, you know, it, rather than explaining the problem with the merits of the bill, whether it's in the public interest, whether it's good policy, whether it's, you know, whatever, it's good for the economy or how it affects the deficit, what have you. Uh, he's instead obsessed with the appearance of bipartisanship. Now, he, he might be right that, in general, uh, bipartisan uh, reforms are more durable. They're less likely to be repealed or become a partisan football. Um, I think there is something to that argument, but it's interesting mm-hmm. that he does not make any... That, that's the only argument that he makes. He does not talk about the other elements of the bill, uh, whether it's good or bad policy. It's just about <laughs> this kind of obsession of the appearance of bipartisanship. 1 size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So at another point, he does talk about the uh, corporate tax cut uh, and where and where he stands on that and electric vehicles. We've got a piece of legislation, but really what it is, it's about $570 or $80 billion of new investment, of new investment into truly traditional infrastructure. And then on top of that, we have close to two to $300 billion in what we call private partnerships. Uh, PPs uh, basically 
getting the private sector to do what they would do and incentivize them uh, without having uh, it score against the debt of the nation. Uh, we don't think we should add more debt than needed, especially where the private sector has always been willing to go if the market was there, and that would be, let's say, electric vehicles and charging stations. We don't have to spend all the treasury's money and go and get on that. The private sector is happy to get into it. And if we give them some pretty attractive financing and incentives, uh, they'll jump in at a quicker pace uh, to get prepared and change, as the transition is coming. So those type of things. And then you have about well, about $320 billion of what we call baseline. And, and that's, as Joe and anyone that's been legislated, we do that. It's a five-year program uh, that we're doing that on things that we can do with the uh, with the trust fund and the highway trust fund, which is the taxes on gasoline, things of that sort. So when we put them all together, you're about that 1.2. 600 of new, and we have paid for it for all of this. So we'll just see if they agree, if the majority of Democrats and Republicans can agree as we get into the broad uh, caucuses now, the broader base of the caucuses. Uh, there's a lot of my caucus that believes that they want to do a lot more in, in the uh, energy realm, if you will, climate, and we're willing to look at it, uh, we're willing to work in a responsible pathway forward, but we're not going to shoot ourselves in the foot. And so from here, Manchin starts talking about the the key debate between uh, progressives in, in Congress, both in the Senate and the House, and and more moderates, where they're pushing for climate to be included in the infrastructure package. And, and there are now a number of uh, members of the Senate and House and progressive outside groups, Sunrise Movement, etc., who are saying if climate is not in, then they're, then they're going to block it. So Let's play now to see how interesting it is how Manchin himself is, is thinking about climate and the infrastructure. The international, uh, the IEA, International Energy Agency, Dr. Brill, there's some good statistics. We'll send to you, Nancy and, and Margaret, and, and to you all and get to everybody uh, so you can show what's happening. But 90% of the emissions are coming from, uh, from Asia, really, and most of China. That's where the increase in all this pollution and, and climate is coming from. We've been able to reduce ours. perfect example is this. They keep talking about coal-fired, stopping all coal-fired utility plants. Well, we have 504 operating in the country, in the United States of America. There's over 1,660 that are operating in the world, coal-fired plants. We have the cleanest in the world in America. We've reduced our emissions in the last two decades. They've increased their tremendously. Uh, and of the 90% of the emissions that are coming from Asia, mostly the biggest part of China, they're only investing about 20% in new tech, uh, climate-saving technology. So it's up to us to lead, to lead the nation in carbon capture sequestration, uh, which can be the number one thing truly about safety, uh, the climate, if you will, the, the, car, uh, the world in climate. Um, the other thing is that there's a hundred, there's a thousand sixty-three coal-fired plants being built or in design right now around the world, and uh, you don't hear them talking about that either. So what we have to do is find a pathway for it, and we will. We'll work with them. But they're trying to say that they have the human infrastructure. The proposal that, that President Biden put out was two point two, two point three trillion. So Lee, that took an interesting turn toward uh, carbon capture. This doesn't sound like somebody who wants to invest much in climate because it's all Asia's fault. But on the other hand, he sees an opportunity 
to invest heavily in carbon capture. What was your read on that? Yeah, the senator is skeptical of uh, electric charging stations, but extremely excited for carbon capture, the type of technology that would allow coal-fired power plants to stay in business. And as you know, the as senator from the premier coal state, that makes sense from a parochial point of view, but might not make sense uh, for the climate. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've read that there are some breakthroughs in uh, coal uh, capture, um, you mm-hmm. know, sequestration uh, technology, but it's still not there. It's not really there's there's not there the technology just simply doesn't exist yet to to capture that pollution and make sure it doesn't get into the atmosphere. Um, but Manchin certainly representing the, the, the coal interest in this discussion. Right. And I'm willing to get canceled and say that it's enough of a crisis that you, you, sh- you really should push on every, every technological front. And, you know, you, you really shouldn't let uh, the, the argument that this is what the coal companies want get in the way of it because you know as he said they actually are building you know another thousand plus coal plants as we speak around around the world and we act we have to do something about that because we're uh, you know because we have been unable to shut all of them down but that's neither here nor there. that's that's nobody cares what i think that's that's mansion's take mansion's take is the only one that matters at at this point and this is another example of what you pointed out earlier that this is an interesting debate to be had uh, publicly but we're not having it publicly. It's just being had, you know, among donors in, on on Zoom calls. And another ex- another example of that is his discussion of the voting rights bill. The other thing I would tell you on voting, you know, you've heard of HR one and S one, the big for the people's. Then you've heard of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which I support. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act. I think we need to make sure that the elections are accessible, they're fair, and they're secure. But I can do this and can help. We just finished up the comparison. And I can give all of you all, if you want to share it again, Nancy, and, and, um, and you and Margaret and Margaret, whoever wants to get a copy, I'll give you a copy because people are saying the only reason Joe Manchin's against the uh, voting uh, the, uh, for the People's Act, you know, H.R. 1, is because there's no Republican. Well, I definitely want Republicans, but I can tell you one thing. If we make some adjustments, Let's pause that right there for a second. I don't want to dwell on this too much, uh, but for Manchin to complain that he's being publicly attacked for objecting to the For the People Act because there are no Republican supporters and complaining that nobody has focused on his objections is precisely because he has refused to detail his objections in public. And he has only said that the reason he opposes it is because there are no Republicans on it. And in fact, last session, he co-sponsored the For the People Act. So whatever policy objections he has to it are, are apparently new. Lee, what did you uh, make of this, this passage? Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's really interesting. And it just kind of shows a little bit of political hypocrisy, especially as you mentioned, since he was a previous sponsor. Um, you know, he, on one hand, he says okay, uh, my critics just expect me to support this um, once it becomes bipartisan. Uh, yet, the, you know, it wasn't bipartisan the last time you sponsored it. So, you know, I, I don't see the coherent argument here. There doesn't seem to be one, but let's let's hear more of that argument. 
I'm going to give you the reasons why I oppose parts of that legislation, and I'll give you the support I have for a conclusive piece of legislation, which I think would really help voting rights. And have have had all your input or anybody that wants to comment on that, because it, there's a process that we've gone through, and we just uh, formalized that, and I'll send it to you all. I'll get it to you. Uh, uh, Margaret, I think uh, we have yours. I'll get it to you or Nancy, and you can share Andy with whoever wants to be part of it. Right. So the the good news for people who are hopeful of voting rights passing once once they get over their you know their their anger at, at the process here is that and what he's saying and I have some reporting that that backs this up is that what he's willing to do is take the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and and beef it up substantially because the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would not even go into effect before the next election. And a lot of experts think that it, it might never go into effect, that the Supreme Court would just dismiss it just as quickly as it dismissed the Voting Rights Act in 2013. And so what he's saying is that he's open to taking important reforms from the For the People Act and bringing them into John Lewis Act. That, that certainly would be within the spirit of the John Lewis Act, because John Lewis himself actually wrote major portions of of the For the People Act before he passed away, including Title I, which is the, the main uh, main election reforms. So in this call, he tells Nancy and Margaret that he's going to you know, send them his objections and they can share it with whoever they want. Later in the call, he spells out um, some of what those objections are. Let's play that. They're talking about everything from uh, when it says we want to stop the dark money. Okay. I think we all want to stop dark money. Uh, the bottom line was it should be fair. Whether it's a labor group or whether it's a corporate group or a business group, it should all be fair by the campaign rules that they have to govern themselves by. And that we have to uh, oversee that. So it should be made, I don't care who spends money against me, I just don't want you to put that you have a campaign going against me and you're calling it for the sake of the children or with the sisters of the poor. Uh, at first, you know, and then I'm behind it. We don't know who it is until after the fact. So I think basically... Uh, when they say about they don't want show IDs, uh, or you basically can't purge the records. Well, you have to purge your records. I was a secretary of state. If you missed two elections, two national elections, eight years, and if we have a return address that comes back, no, to send her, basically, and never gets that person, then we've got to purge them. So, Lee, do you read from that first part that he's saying he's comfortable with a lot of the campaign finance reform pieces around disclosure? in the For the People Act? You know, it's not perfectly clear to me. He's definitely in favor of saying we need to stop dark money, but he's saying that the current bill, or at least he's implying from the way I hear this, that it's not currently fair, that there might be some kind of carve-out for labor groups or other certain groups, and that it should equally mm -hmm. stop dark money from both businesses and labor, but... Generally speaking, that's how the rules currently exist, or at least the rules that are proposed. Uh, so it's not clear what he's demanding. And he's also in a, in a conversation with a, a Zoom call full of dark money donors, but that's neither here here nor there. So then he moves on to his two other objections that he details. I'll say same-day registration. We don't have Internet services in rural America. How can I know if you walk up for same day that you want to vote and register I can't check it to find out 
if you're a citizen, if you actually live in the state or whatever. So there's a, I'll give you, I'm sending this to you all. And I, and I'm, I know that Nancy and Margaret will share it with everybody. Uh, and I think it should be. It gives you a, a good outlook of where I'm coming from and how we've evaluated. Next of all, the bill on the, the S-1 bill is about a six or seven hundred page bill. Okay, which is basically for the people. The Voting Rights Act bill, which we've done, and Joe, you probably voted for it, and all four or five times it was bipartisan. It's about a 45 or 50 page bill. It basically puts guardrails on what we're not going to let states basically make it almost impossible for people that come from poor or black or brown communities or immigrants or basically people that they don't want to vote because they might not vote the way they want them to vote. Those are the things we're trying to, and you're right. You know, if you don't have accessible, free, fair, and secure elections, then that's the bedrock of democracy. We might be in serious problems of having anyone that has any confidence in who we elect or paying attention or authority. That's what scares me more than anything. All right, Lee, so he details a number of objections there. It seems like he's opposed to uh, barring voter ID requirements. He's opposed to automatic voter registration. He's opposed to restricting purging of the voter rolls. Is this something that, that we knew before when it came to his reservations? I don't believe he's made these objections front and center or really public. If you actually look last week in the Charleston Gazette Mail, that's the uh, main paper in West Virginia, his, his state, Joe Manchin wrote a whole op-ed laying out his opposition to the For the People Act, this voting rights, civil rights bill from Democrats. And in this op-ed, he makes a number of arguments, but they're largely about the lack of bipartisan support for this legislation. He does not make the argument that, you know, secretaries of state need to be purging their voter rolls, uh, you know, a very controversial dynamic that uh, critics argue, um, you know, suppresses the vote by making it much harder for infrequent voters or, you know, people who have moved or whatever uh, to to know that they're registered to, to, to vote regularly. People don't realize they just have, have to re-register to vote and then they lose the ability to vote in an election. And, uh, you know, same-day voting that, again, if there are problems with registering, that uh, that gives people the the ability to vote if, you know, they, they miss the deadline or whatever. Um, to participate in an election. And in this op-ed that he published just last week, he doesn't make these arguments, but he's making these uh, fairly detailed arguments to this group of mega-donors, including many billionaires. And he's saying he's going to write down his detailed objections to the law and send them to Nancy Jacobson, the co-founder of No Labels, and then she will distribute it to the donors. I mean, it's really a, a different, a completely different mm-hmm. take, uh, what he's saying in public versus what he's saying privately to this group of donors. Yep, yep. And the... Most generous, uh, most charitable read would be that he just hadn't been paying attention to it up until the last few days. But I, I hesitate to even credit that. And it fits with uh, the pattern that you had identified earlier. And so for, for all of, you know, for, for this to work, Democrats probably need to reform the filibuster. We're unlikely to see 10 Republicans agree to even a uh, watered down Joe Manchin style version of the of the John Lewis voting rights bill. The most that Manchin talks about money in this meeting is in is in the following clip. Let's play that part. The bottom line is just find out who basically cares more about the country and do about themselves. I, I, I don't know how to tell you that. You all you would not be in your positions that you are and the success you've had if you couldn't read people and tell 
if it's self-service or public service. And uh, they can only BS you so long. Pretty much the truth comes out. And right now what I'm asking for, I need to go back. I need to find three more Republican, good Republican senators that will vote for the uh, commission so that at least we can tamp them down to what people say Republicans won't even do the simple lift. The common sense of basically voting to do a commission that was truly bipartisan. Uh, you know, so once the people, and it really, it, it, it just really uh, uh, emboldens the uh, far left saying, I showed you, I, you know, uh, how's that bipartisan working for you now, Joe? Uh, those are the hard things. That's why I need help, Dan. Later in this episode, we'll talk more about the commission and, and Manchin's interest in the commission. But what he seems to be saying here, Lee, is that he's getting a direct question from a donor you know, about where they should direct uh, their finances. And what he's telling them is that, look, I need help getting more Republicans to join, to, to vote for this January 6th commission because it's giving the far left all of this ammunition to say, look, see, you can't work with these Republicans. How are you going to cut a deal with them when they won't even investigate the, the January 6th ransacking of the capital that's even after they were given every, you know, everything they asked for on the commission? So he's saying... Those are the people that you need to send your money to, which is, okay, I guess he's trying to save democracy or something, but he's coming pretty close there to saying that he would like people, he would, I mean, he's pretty much directly saying that he wants donors uh, to finance Republicans so that they will uh, endorse the January 6th commission so that he can say, so that he can save the filibuster so that he can then you know, help those donors enact all of their much broader agenda. Am I reading too much into that? What was your What was your take on that that segment? No, I, I had the same sense, Ryan, from from listening to this. I mean, if you zoom out, you know, from fifty thousand feet and, and look at this, it's it's actually kind of remarkable. I mean, these are hedge fund, private equity, uh, finance billionaires, corporate executives who want to preserve low taxes preferential t- tax treatment. They're concerned with the government stepping in and taking up uh, the role that the private sector plays in various industries as well, perhaps in part of the infrastructure bill. So for those reasons, um, they want to preserve the filibuster, which is you know, a procedural obstacle to changing any of those policies. And what Manchin, I think, very cleverly points out is that the way you preserve the filibuster is by taking away the argument that Republicans can never come to the table, can never act in a bipartisan way, and that, you know, this very kind of, it's become a political uh, football, but this very emotionally driven event, this event that's become this huge spectacle that Democrats and, you know, many people across the country kind of obsess over and talk about is this January 6th incident that uh, Democrats want this commission and so what Manchin says to what Democrat what, what some of the Democratic Party want to do is say that because Republicans won't work with Democrats uh, to institute this commission to investigate and further investigate this January 6th thing, um, you know, we might lose the filibuster. So if you care about the filibuster, perhaps for those other reasons, mm-hmm. you know, you know, for all these reasons, the donors care about the filibuster, get your your campaign dollars, get your get on the phone with Republicans you have a connection to and get them to support this commission because otherwise the filibuster could be gone 
And without the filibuster, a lot of other things could happen. And he doesn't just stop there. Immediately afterwards, he, he starts naming names and telling them specifically um, who they should go after. So let's just roll that clip from right from there. And here's the thing. Let me just tell you. Okay, let, I'll give you some names here. Roy Blunt is a great, just a good friend of mine, a great guy, okay? You would like to think that Roy's retiring. If some of you all who might be worried for working with Roy in his next life could tell him that it would be nice to help our country, that would be very good. Get him to change his vote, and we're going to have another vote on this thing. Okay, that's incredible. Let's stop that right there, Lee. I mean, wow. Roy Blunt is great. He's a good friend of mine. <laughs> okay, you would like to think that Roy is retiring. If some of you all might want to, basically, if some of you all might be worth working with Roy in his next life, could tell him that it'd be nice to, and help our country. He is specifically telling them. That's a revolving door. He's, he's offering him, saying, hey, if you want to offer Roy Blunt a job when he joins your corporate board. And, and let him know, <laughs> let him know uh, now. That you will do that, which is not legal. Let's be clear. Like that, that would break yeah. the law. This is, and to be clear, this is the form of semi-legal, but you know, technically illegal. Although it happens all the time, uh, bribery that's very common in, in the United States. In many other countries, you know, it's a briefcase full of cash or whatever. In America, if you want to bribe a senator or congressman with hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. You can't give it to them directly. What you do is you promise them a consulting job, a board of directors position, you know, something of that nature after they retire. So they then become indebted to you. You know, they, they, they vote the way you expect them to. They, you know, you, they be, you behave politically as expected because they're hoping for their payday the second they retire. So what Manchin is saying is that Roy Blunt, senator from Missouri, his good friend is retiring. He's going to be looking for that mm -hmm. private sector gig as he's covertly on the job market. And the people on the call, the corporate executives and Wall Street titans, are recruiting him. Part of the recruitment is, hey, uh, join this commission to save the, to for the, for the January 6th right. incident, but well, to save the filibuster. Incredible irony that you would be doing this to, to quote unquote, save democracy. <laughs> That's right, too. <laughs> All right, so let's ro let's keep rolling that because he's got more names. They'll give me one more shot at it. The Democrats will. Uh, I asked Schumer and Bush, and he says, Chuck, I'd like to have another vote first before you rule this out completely on this bipartisan commission. You've got that. You've got basically a Richard Burr who voted for the impeachment, but then he didn't vote for this for whatever reason. And I know he thought because we're doing all these other commissions, we're not really truly doing a bipartisan commission out of the political realm that we're in right now, and, and uh, my good friend Joe Lieberman understands that. Joe, Joe, Joe's looking at things differently today than he looked at when he was inside the Senate. He's in it clearer, I'm sure, and he can speak out more freely, right, Joe? Well, uh, what I see is uh, you're, you're being a hero, uh, Joe, and I, I appreciate it very much, and, and uh, I get the biggest kick out of the, when I read people comparing your role with the one I played occasionally. It's not, it's not easy, it's not always popular, but boy, you said it, uh, which is you're putting the country ahead of party and person. And uh, in the spirit of bipartisanship, may I quote uh, the great John McCain who used to say, there is no greater satisfaction than serving a cause larger than yourself. And uh, you're doing it, so we're here to help 
let's stop it there. Lee, do you do you think that they are so far gone that they recognize the clash between talking about serving a cause larger than themselves just a breath away from suggesting that these billionaires uh, dangle a post-Senate gig in front of a senator so that he'll change his vote to help preserve the filibuster. Do you think Do you think that even registers anymore? Well, look, I, I don't want to... It's hard to say. You know, I, I feel like many of these folks, that you could analyze this from the outside and see lots of hypocrisy, but if you talk to these, these type of donors or these type of politicians, uh, many of them genuinely believe that their preservation of the status quo and... Uh, moderate form of politics is patriotic and serving the country. So, you know, hard to say. Um, <laughs> I think it's easy to critique, but and so there were fifty-six votes for the for the commission. You know, he talks about how Pat Toomey wasn't there. That would, but was supportive of us. That'd be fifty-seven. So he needs three. There's another moment where he where he names other people that he's that he other Republicans that he thinks he can flip. I've got four people. I got. Steve Gaines in Montana, I think that someone should be worked on Jerry Moran in Kansas, Richard Burr uh, in uh, North Carolina, and Roy Blunt in Missouri. Uh, we already have seven. Uh, we have seven, including Pat Toomey, that have already voted for it. Six voted for it. Uh, Pat wasn't there, but Pat already indicated he would have voted for it. So we're going to reaffirm that anybody that knows Pat Toomey, but if we could go back and show that we reevaluated, we can do this commission. The only thing I can tell you on that commission, uh, they were having every reason why they weren't going to support it. First of all, it wasn't balanced. Uh, the count as far as the people on the committee was weighted for the Democrats. We got that change to where it's five and five. The chairman and co-chairman had equal amounts of input. If they disagreed, then it basically goes to where we don't proceed. If it doesn't, they don't agree on the outcome or something that comes up in that commission. And next of all, if they run into uh, loggerheads and can't get it, that's what we have to do. If Roy can re-engage and we can get this passed, I can guarantee you it calms down everyone that's beating me to death on what makes you think that you live in la-la land now, you're in fantasy world, or you're not in the real world. Or what makes you think that Republicans will vote for anything if they wouldn't even do it a bipartisan commission? That's why it's important for Craig for us to try to get it done. Important if you can get Roy to do it. Well, there you go. So there, yeah, there he there he is saying it, you know, quite directly. That's what that's why it's important to get Roy so they can uh, so they can show that they can actually get something done. Lee, that sounds about in line with what he was saying earlier, right? Yeah, I mean, Manchin is a very intelligent political animal, and he really understands that this is the best. Uh, best argument, perhaps, within the Democratic caucus for getting rid of the filibuster if they can't bring Republicans on board on this. So that's why he's really hammering this home. And what's interesting is that when he later talks about the filibuster itself, he's remarkably open to uh, reforming it, and it, which maybe is coherent because it's, it's saying, like, look, these are really good arguments that the left has. Like, if you can't sign on to this commission, it does make it, you know, much harder for me to defend uh, the filibuster. And and so he addresses directly the role that Mitch McConnell played in in blowing up the, the commission in a way, in a much more direct way than he has, he has talked about before. Mitch 
Mitch McConnell's in the way on everything right now. He's calling the shots on the Republican side. And I think that Mitch, you know, whether you like him or don't, the only thing Mitch cares about is the 2022 election. I asked him, I said, Mitch, uh, we had 12 or 15 people going to vote on that commission, January 6th commission, 12 or 14 of the Republicans. I went and talked to him, and he came out against it, and then the numbers went down to six or seven. And I said, Mitch, I need your help on this. I can't continue to do it all by myself. And he said, Joe, he said, that's just not good for our politics. And I said, Mitch, not knowing what happened and preventing it from happening again, it's not good for our country either. And I'm more concerned about our country. So if you want to know, it's, it's, it's hard. He has a hard stance. It's all about the next election. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that in a disparaging way. It's just who he is. Uh, so that's, that's the block that we've got to get over and the hurdle we've got. We've made some progress on some of it and, and on things that's really important that they can use against us because of the filibuster he knows that I won't break the filibuster. He feels that he has the ability to say no that might help his. It's, it's, it's unfair. Let me just say this, Pam. It's unfair for him to uh, say that it's all about the 2022 election as long as I take all the errors and and spears on the filibuster. Now, I'm committed to the filibuster because it's bigger than him being the majority leader, minority leader, or how long any of us are going to be here. The filibuster allows our democracy to work uh, that uh, no other country can do what we do because we do have to find common ground. And we're just having a hard time. When you talk to these people, ask them the last time they had a cup of coffee with each other. Ask them the last time they had a meal with each other. Ask them the last time they even talked to somebody about how's your wife or your children doing. There's nothing going on. You understand? That's the problem we've got. Nobody cares. And they won't take the time to make the effort. That's the problem. So when they start preaching to me, and they know that I have dinner with everybody, I talk to everybody, I work with everybody, and they're going to chastise me because I'm trying to be too bipartisan, but I can tell you where I tell them to go. Because I said, when you make an effort, then I'll sit down and talk to you. You're making no effort at all, so don't preach to me. So... Lee, it's interesting. He's talking about f- fairness, and I think he, he's he's not he's not wrong in his analysis. Uh, McConnell, as much as Manchin says, knows that Manchin won't blow up the filibuster, so he's tr- he's going to ride that into twenty twenty two, and Manchin's going to take all of the uh, sling slings and arrows. Um, when you listen to that, there doesn't seem to be much wiggle room or much hope for Democrats that he's going to bend on the filibuster, does there? Well, it doesn't sound like it, but then he goes on later to make make some arguments that mm-hmm. um, many progressives and Democrats have made about reforming the filibuster. So he, he sees it as an important institution, but an institution that he's willing to change. Yeah, so let's play that. So he's asked, he's asked by somebody from Jacksonville, Florida, about the uh, proposal to lower the threshold for cloture to 55 votes. You could end a filibuster with, with 55 votes. And he starts talking pretty interesting about the filibuster here. You know, that's, that's one of many good, uh, good suggestions I've had. I looked back in 19, I think it was 73 when it went from 67 votes to 60 votes. And also what was happening, what made them think that it needed to change. So I'm open to looking at it. I'm just not open to getting rid of the, of the filibuster. That's all. And uh, right now, 60 is where I planted my flag. Uh, but I'm, uh, as long as they know that I'm going to protect this filibuster, we're looking at good solutions. Let's pause that there to translate it a bit for people who get lost in the in the legislative lingo. 
when he says he planted his flag at 60, you know, he has very publicly said he's not going to roll back 60 as the number of votes you need to get cloture. And cloture is a thing that ends a filibuster. And so if he doesn't lift up that flag and move off of 60, then, then really uh, you're done. But what he's saying here is that he planted his flag there. But as long as people know that he's protecting the filibuster, he's willing to look at good solutions. So there is the current version of the filibuster. Then there's the version that existed you know, before the reforms of the 1970s. And as he's saying here, he's interested in other reforms that would keep the spirit of the filibuster alive. And then he gets, he gets into some of those right here. So roll, it, roll that forward. I've had everything offered to me, but says, I think basically it should be 41 people should have to push the issue versus the 60 that we need in an affirmative. So find 41 in a negative. And then when they used to have the 67 vote threshold, they used to be used to have that 10% of the Senate, as I understood it, go down with you and confirm that they supported your reason for opposing. Well, I think one little change to be made on the right now to be made is basically anyone who wants to filibuster ought to be required to go to the floor and, and basically state your objection and why you're filibustering and also state your cure, what you think needs to change to fix it so you would support it. To me, that's pretty constructive. I'm telling you why I'm against something. So yeah, he, so he's saying that instead of having the onus be on the majority to go out and get 60 votes, which Democrats Democrats can't do on anything, you know, the minority would have to find 41 votes, which a determined minority could do, but they would have to basically occupy the floor uh, 24-7. And so at some point, a determined majority you know, could overcome a, a, a determined minority because just physically, those 41 people just couldn't stay there forever. Um, that's what he hinted at last spring. Uh, and we did an episode on that back then. He got a ton of heat and days later published something in the Washington Post saying he would never weaken or eliminate the filibuster to, to get the heat off of him. Um, Lee, you know, do, what, do you, what do you read into this, him, him floating the same thing that he floated three or four months ago? Well, I mean, it just simply shows that he's still interested in this type of reform, which is not that radical and, and not, at least in my mind, not clear exactly how it, it would play out structurally. Mm-hmm. Would it would radically change anything in, on any of the big issues? I don't know. Um, you know, just making, but in general, you know, ensuring more transparency. This happened a little bit during the Obama years when they got rid of those secret holds when senators mm-hmm. could basically put place... Uh, a bill or nominee uh, in limbo without really disclosing their role in doing so. And that was absurd. So just simply having senators stand by their positions um, seemed to be a common sense popular reform, relatively speaking. And this kind of gets at that. It's, again, geared towards transparency and making senators actually stand for what they believe in if they're going to jam up the system and obstruct any kind of vote uh, with a minority of votes. Um, but you know, look at the end of the day, um, not to make too much of a non sequitur here, but like, you know, we have winner take all elections, which, you know, mathematically leads, uh, in most cases to a two party system. If you want a system, what, which is what, uh, Joe Manchin is describing where various factions and parties have to coalition and talk to each other. Um, alliances have to be made. People have to be, uh, 
professional and polite and, and, and work with the other side if they want to pass legislation, well, then you have to just change the entire system. It's not just about one procedural rule in a legislative body. You look at countries like Germany or the countries in Scandinavia or the Netherlands or even Israel in the last few weeks, systems that are that are not winner-take-all, that are proportionally proportional representation, of, you know, mathematically, just procedurally, engender uh, coalition building. You know, Germany's been ruled by a grand coalition of left and right where everyone gets together, has coffee, talks to each other. Those are the mansion criteria. And they pass a lot of legislation and policy together. In America, we have winner-take-all elections, and that leads to this kind of gridlock. So, I mean, these, these are common sense reforms that he's talking about, not radical reforms, not nothing that would dramatically change things. But if you really want to get to a system where the various factions and, and you know, parties in society get together and we have truly competitive elections where we have a multi-party system, we need much bigger picture reform. And so sorry to take this a little off track, but, right. um, you know, that, that if, if Manchin truly believes that that's what he should push, he, he shouldn't be talking about there's 41 members sitting in a, in a, in a, in a, on a chamber floor. He needs to be looking around the world where, you know, political scientists have studied this problem very, very well. And, you know, Lee Drutman of the New America Foundation has a great book on this, but, you know, we need to be, be looking at other forms of, of, of elections and how we, we elect our legislative bodies if we want to get to this fundamental problem. Well, the fundamental problem of that is that West Virginia would probably not come out with the power it has right. <laughs> in that proportional system. We have a di- we have a disproportional system. But, you know, there's, there, there are wider trends. I mean, maybe just like the Senate is gerrymandered, right? Like, if we had a different way mm-hmm. of electing the Senate body that's not in these randomly drawn states, Appalachia as a region deserves representation. Maybe they need their own caucus or even political party, and they might coalition with other regions of the country. If we had a system that was more like uh, the proportional representation systems they have in the Netherlands and other countries. Well, I don't think a constitutional convention is necessarily out of the question in our lifetimes at the, at the rate we're going. And I, I wonder if the, um, the donors will actually be even more motivated um, to work to get blunt and some of the others after they heard how open Manchin actually is to other uh, ideas around the filibuster. And we have to kind of bookmark this conversation and look at what happens to the senators he mentioned in this call. Do they join the commission? And then once some of them retire, uh, Burr is set to retire, Blunt set to retire, I believe. To me. Will they be joining the private equity boards of the, of the members uh, who are, of the donors who are on this call? I think that's something that we should check in the next few years. We will definitely be watching that. Uh, to me too, Get, go, going back to Wall Street. Well, uh, Lee Fong, um, terrific reporting. And thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Ryan, thanks for having me. Take care. That was Lee Fong, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Thank you.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.